From Liangjiahe, a village on the barren lowest plateau in northwest China, to Zhongnanhai, the center of China's top leadership in Beijing. Xi Jinping has served in various posts at different levels of the government across China, starting in his early years as a junior village official to governing as China's top leader. What's he like as an individual and as a leader? How have his work experiences from earlier decades been influencing his leadership as the national leader? What are some of the core principles that have guided his decisions and actions? I consider myself a relatively hard-working person. I know very well that people's biggest concerns are education, employment, income. We can't pursue development through destructive methods, depleting the legacies from our ancestors while exhausting the options for our future generations. The Stories of Xi Jinping podcast series shares the life and work experiences of Xi Jinping and explores the formation of his governing principles, philosophy, beliefs, among others. Getting to know Xi's thoughts on national governance and how his leadership took shape may help you better understand China's path, governance and principles. You can follow the Stories of Xi Jinping podcast series on all major podcast platforms. Examining the events that impact and shape China and the rest of the world. This is the Beijing Hour, one hour of news and information brought to you every weekday. Now here's your host. Shane Bigham with you on this Friday, June 9th, 2023. You're listening to the Beijing Hour, coming to you live from the Chinese capital. On today's program, the president of Honduras is now in Shanghai for the start of a state visit. The Kremlin's warning of negative impacts for the Black Sea grain deal following damage to a pipeline for Russian ammonia exports. And wildfire smoke continues to pose a health hazard for millions in parts of Canada and the United States. In business, China's consumer prices continue to rise, but factory costs are dropping. In sports, the women's number one tennis player is back in the final at Roland Garros. In culture and entertainment, UNESCO inscribes more Chinese culture on its heritage list. And now the day's top stories. Honduran President Xiaomara Castro is in Shanghai to begin her state visit to China. The two countries established official diplomatic relations in March. China inaugurated its embassy in the Honduran capital earlier this week. The Honduran president scheduled to pay uh, or to visit rather the, the Shanghai-based New Development Bank and meet with bank president Delmut Rousseff. Castro will also stop by the Huawei Innovation Center before heading to Beijing to meet President Xi Jinping. Chen Tong takes a closer look at the development of China-Honduras ties. Over the past two years, the relationship between the two countries have been developing very rapidly. Well, we know a bunch of uh, Honduran officials and journalists have been invited to visit China, including visiting here in Shanghai. And China's embassy in Honduras was just established. Well, earlier, Castro tweeted and she said, the refunding of Honduras demands new political, technical, commercial, and cultural horizons. And these horizons will be sought in China. According to the Foreign Minister of Honduras, the two countries will be signing a series of memorandums, deals, uh, contracts during the visit. And in 2022, the bilateral trade between the two countries uh, reached some 1.6 billion US dollars. 90% of them were actually China's exports to Honduras. And this figure we're only expected to grow larger after Castro's visit. And that was Chen Tong in Shanghai. Uh, the new diplomatic relationship was made possible after Honduras cut official ties with the Taiwan region. Uh, Charles Defer Yubo at the newly opened Chinese embassy in Honduras says the One China principle is the broad consensus of the international community. He says bilateral ties are off to a good start. Within the past three months, uh, both sides have uh, honored their commitments on a basis of uh, uh, mutual respect, equality, and women cooperation. We have reaped some initial benefits from the bilateral relations. Both sides are committed to further consolidating the consensus 
of bilateral relations, and we believe that the diplomatic relations of our two countries in the fundamental interest of both peoples and both countries. Uh, the embassy official also says that China will facilitate the import of more products from its new Central American partner. New diplomatic cooperation between China and Honduras also brings opportunities in many other areas. Alistair Baverstock spoke with teachers and students in the Honduran capital to learn about what this all means for academic exchanges. Following the establishment of diplomatic ties with China, students in Honduras are being offered what could be life-altering new opportunities. A cross-Pacific academic exchange program now seeks to offer Honduras's most promising students spots at China's top educational institutions. China has offered hundreds of places at its top international universities as part of a very large and innovative academic exchange program. For this Central American country, it's a leg up towards its own development. We are interested in engineering and water management in particular, and China has been very successful in those fields. So for us, it is key to learn from what China can teach us through the formation of these human resources. News of the upcoming opportunities to study across the Pacific has spread fast. The Social Development Ministry here says it has received more than 200 applications from Honduran students looking to study abroad at Chinese universities just since formal relations were established in March. It's an academic exchange aimed at deepening these countries' ties. For students at this country's leading university, the exchange is an enticing prospect. I would love to study in China because I would learn new things. If I could share my Spanish there and learn to speak Mandarin, I could teach that language in Honduras later. I would love it. China is very advanced. They have a greater understanding of our subjects. And that would be experience we could bring back home. Mathematics professor Mariano Solorsano also sees the academic offerings across the Pacific as a great opportunity. China is a power when it comes to mathematics. The country has taken first place in the past four math Olympics. So for our youth with talent, to maximize their potential, Establishing an academic relationship with China could be highly productive. With opportunities to study in China now open to them, Honduras's next generation says it wants to bring the best Asia has to offer back to Central America. That was Alistair Baverstock reporting. Reporter Leo Jashin traveled to Honduras after the Central American country established official diplomatic ties with China, and she shares her impressions of the country. Since March 26, Honduras became the 182nd country to establish diplomatic ties with China. And as soon as we heard the news, we started to book flights to this country. And it took us three days to arrive in this Caribbean country located in Central America. So it's a long journey. And it turns out that everyone needs to fly that long to this country. So, so it, it's really a brand new experience for me. And the Tegucigalpa, which is its capital city, is where we stayed most of our time there um, and it is surrounded by mountains we felt like we we're climbing in the hills all the time it's very interesting well this is one of the uh, one of a few capitals in the world that has no railways in 1888 a planned railway was you know planned to uh, build from its Caribbean coast to its capital but it only reached as far north as San Pedro Sula so San Pedro Sula became its uh, second largest city and its industrial uh, center Honduras is also a tourism country. Yeah, it's very famous for its uh, diverse sightseeing, like, like landscape. Some places in the mountainous area, like the capital, you also have, they, they also have some places near the sea. So for example, some little towns on the outskirts of the capital, um, they're so lovely and they, they're all, they, they all have their features. Some are famous for their murals, like the paintings on the wall, and some are famous for, for the crafts. Other than that, Honduran um, banana and bananas and coffee also account like half of its export economy. That was Leo Jashin with her impressions of Honduras. Coming up, Russia's warning about the Black Sea Grain Initiative. When China launched its Shenzhou 16 spacecraft, the crew took with them 10 paintings by young Africans to China's space station. This week on China Africa Talk, 
We speak with two of the lucky teens about their winning art pieces. They also share what it means to be featured in the first international painting exhibition on the China Space Station. Catch the full discussion on China Africa Talk, available on your favorite podcast. We'll see you there. About nine minutes past the hour, the Kremlin's warned of what it calls a negative impact on the fate of the Black Sea grain deal after a blast damaged a pipeline that's used to export Russian ammonia via Ukraine. The pipeline once pumped up to two and a half million tons of ammonia annually for global export through a Ukrainian port on the Black Sea. It's lain idle since the start of the conflict in February of last year. Russia's accused Ukrainian forces of blowing up a part of the pipeline in Ukraine's Kharkiv region. The regional Ukrainian governor said that Russia had shelled the pipeline. The United Nations struck a deal with Russia to help Moscow export its ammonia fertilizers. The agreement came roughly at the same time as the Black Sea Grain Initiative that was brokered by the UN and Turkey. Hundreds are trapped on rooftops in southern Ukraine after a dam collapsed. Floodwater is still rising and threatening thousands more. Pablo Gutierrez has more. Rescue workers raced to evacuate people from flooded villages near the Dnipro River. The destruction of the Kakhovka hydroelectric dam sent thousands of cubic feet of water gushing downstream, threatening 80 settlements and thousands of residents on the rivers. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky toured the disaster area in Kherson and pleaded for help from the international community. Now, a clear and prompt response from the world is needed to what is happening. It's even impossible to accurately determine how many people in the temporary occupied territory of the Kherson region may die without rescue, without drinking water, without food, without medical assistance. Thousands of residents are without food and drinking water. According to Ukrainian authorities, water levels peaked at just over three meters in the city of Kherson and are expected to recede in the coming days. Thousands of people have been evacuated while the fighting continues. Russian emergency services launched their own rescue missions. Ukraine has blamed Russia for the breach of the dam, while Russia stated that Ukrainian forces carried out the attack. The dam lies on the conflict's front line, leaving residents caught in the middle. We need to evacuate Granny. She's on the first floor, sitting there with her cats and dogs. We brought her from another district yesterday as we hoped it would be safer here, but we need to evacuate her again today. Ukraine's authorities say the dam breach could be the country's worst ecological disaster in recent history, as floodwaters engulf towns Petrol stations and farms where pesticides and other chemicals are used. The extent of the environmental damage might not be known for weeks. That was Pablo Gutierrez reporting on the aftermath of that damaged dam in Ukraine. Four toddlers are among the six people seriously injured in a knife attack in France. Authorities have arrested a suspect after the incident at a lakeside park in the Alps. The French interior minister says the man was denied asylum because he already had it in Sweden. Natalie Malgas was at the scene. French prosecutors say terrorism doesn't appear to be the motive in the Ansi Park attack, but they're still unsure what drove the 31-year-old to carry out the assault. Officials say the suspect has no criminal or psychiatric record. The man is a Syrian national who was granted refugee status in Sweden about a decade ago. Eyewitnesses say he charged onto this playground popular with tourists and targeted the young victims with a knife. French Prime Minister Elizabeth Bourne visited the scene moments after police shot the suspect in the leg and arrested him. We are shocked by this heinous and despicable act. When it affects children, I think we are all affected profoundly, and today, our whole country is in shock. In total, four children were injured. Among the victims, a toddler and a three-year-old who were accosted while playing on a pushchair. Several roads adjacent to the popular Lake Ansi were blocked while the site was still an active crime scene. President Emmanuel Macron tweeted the nation is in shock over this, quote, act of cowardice, while France's National Assembly observed a minute of silence. Several consular officials are also expected to visit the victims after it was revealed Dutch, German and British citizens were among the wounded. 
That was Natalie Malgas in Annecy, France. European Union ministers have agreed on how to share the responsibility for looking after migrants and refugees. Uh, the agreement comes after 12 hours of negotiation that got Italy and Greece to sign up to a deal that's eluded the bloc for nearly a decade. Under the deal, each country will be responsible for a set number of people, but would not necessarily have to take them in. A country is unwilling to receive irregular migrants and refugees arriving ad hoc to the EU will be able to help their host peers through cash, around €20,000 per person, or equipment and personnel. Uh, the agreement will introduce a, a new expedited border procedure for those deemed unlikely to win asylum. Former U.S. President Donald Trump says a federal grand jury has indicted him over his handling of classified documents after leaving office. Trump's attorney said the former president will appear in a Miami court on Tuesday. It makes him the first ex-president to face federal charges. This comes as another legal setback for Trump as he seeks to regain the presidency next year. William Denslow has more. This all stems uh, from these allegations that Donald Trump took classified documents with him uh, when he left the White House. He brought them uh, to his home. It is being alleged at his home in Mar-a-Lago. Now, we've heard from one of Donald Trump's attorneys speaking on CNN, detailing what is believed to be some of these seven counts that Donald Trump is expected to be faced with uh, when he arrives in court in Miami on Tuesday afternoon here in the United States. It's believed that he's set to be charged with violating the Espionage Act obstruction charges as well as uh, charges of making false statements. Now, we've already had a bit of a precursor as to what we might expect to hear from Donald Trump going forward. That and that message is likely to be one of uh, strong denial. On social media, he's already come out describing it as a hoax. He says he is innocent. He's accused the Biden administration of corruption. He says that this indictment marks a dark day for the United States. He says it is a country in decline. That was William Denzel reporting. Police in Virginia have arrested a 19-year-old suspect in connection with a shooting that killed two people and wounded five others at a high school graduation ceremony. He's facing two counts of second-degree murder. Interim Police Chief Rick Edwards is with the Richmond Police Department. As they heard the gunfire, uh, it was obviously chaos. We had hundreds of people in Monroe Park, so people scattered. It was very chaotic at the scene. I can tell you that the person we believe is the uh, who is going to be charged was detained initially by VCU security. An 18-year-old and his stepfather were shot dead. The injured are said to be recovering from gunshot wounds. Uh, U.S. President Joe Biden calls gun violence an epidemic. Data from the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention shows that firearms are now the number one killer of children and teens in the United States. Benji Heyer finds out why. Tens of thousands of Americans die at the end of a barrel of a gun every single year. Of them, hundreds are children, falling victim to gun violence which has, in general, increased in past years due to a perfect storm of factors. You have a situation where we're going through a global pandemic, and then at the same time, you start seeing an increase in gun sales and firearm sales. Jesenia Pizarro is a professor at the School of Criminology and Criminal Justice at Arizona State University. There's a change in rhetoric, too, in, in coming from our political leaders, all that have had a not-so-great effect. The impact, more mass shootings than there have been days in 2023. Yet whilst those get the headlines, the reality for young casualties is quite literally closer to home. They're more likely to be collateral or, you know, secondary victims in acts of domestic violence and intimate partner homicides. Um, in some cities, we have seen increases in those, even though there has been increase in mass shootings, what's driving these record highs are your everyday types of firearm violence, um, which are those of an intimate partner nature or those of community violence nature. So what's the solution? Demands for tighter regulation are often met with resilience by many gun owners, Republican Party lawmakers and the powerful firearm lobby. 
and calls for greater deterrence or punishment are welcomed by some, but criminologist Gary Clegg argues that in a nation with the sixth highest incarceration rate in the world, there's a growing desire for a new strategy, one aimed at addressing the inherent underlying causes. We locked up uh, a larger fraction of our population than, than any um, high-income society on the planet. We've now reached a point of diminishing returns. Locking up more people is not going to produce enough of a violence reduction to make it worth the cost. But we got to try something different. we got to focus on what are the long-term uh, uh, sources of violence in America and have been for decades and decades. And it's not anything that's just happening lately. It's the poverty and inequality in an otherwise very affluent society. That would still require an appetite for generational change, something that's hard to find across the political spectrum and inside the corridors of Congress. Without it, though, this uniquely American cycle of senseless tragedies will likely go on and on. For The Beijing Hour, I'm Benji Heyer in Washington, D.C. Coming up, wildfire smoke is ruining air quality for millions in Canada and the U.S. Humanity has declared a war against plastic waste, introducing various bans on single-use plastic products. But so far, the results seem to be far from being satisfactory. Why is that? As the U.N. Environment Program renews the campaign to eradicate plastic pollution, what could be the key to victory? We try to answer some of these and others on this week's Chat Lounge on your favorite podcast platform and right here on CGTN Radio. It's 20 minutes past the hour. Well, fires continue to burn out of control across Canada. In Quebec, officials say 13,500 people have left their homes because of the blazes. Uh, Premier Francois Legault says the northwestern part of the province is the key area. The main problem or the main concern is about North Metal in uh, uh, Abitibi. Uh, we had seven aircraft working to try to reduce uh, 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 the rhythm, the progression, but uh, still it, 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 it's worse, but still under control. And of course, the 845 people that have been evacuated will stay evacuated. And for the next few days, we uh, unfortunately don't think that we'll be able to reintegrate uh, the, the people. Well, in the meantime, hazy and hazardous conditions resulting from the wildfires lingers in parts of the United States. A new wave of toxic smoke has blanketed the region. It's affected flights and outdoor activities across the Northeast. Jody Jacobs reports. The dangerous smog in New York City persists, and at one point on Wednesday evening, the air quality index hit 484 on a scale that tops up at 500. That's a dangerous level and the highest the city has ever recorded. New York Governor Kathy Oakle has made thousands of N95 masks available as the city and state officials continue to urge people to mask up and refrain from strenuous outdoor activities. I've been advising people where possible, stay inside. Uh, even though the air outside will ultimately find its way inside, the levels will be reduced. Uh, also, it's it's it, this is not the time to be playing tennis or jogging or getting ready for a marathon. Go easy on your lungs. Don't do anything that requires deep, heavy breathing. The smog is also affecting visibility at airports, bringing about delays, especially into New York and New York, New Jersey. The FAA also briefly halted flights bound for New York's LaGuardia Airport and delays up and down the East Coast could persist until late Thursday or even Friday. The air around iconic New York City landmarks like Times Square remains dense and the threat remains real. We need to be prepared for more fires from Canada and also our own state. Uh, we are at a fire risk in our own state because it, in it is incredibly dry especially in western New York and central New York. So we want to make sure that we are aware of that as well. Several events in and around New York and New Jersey continue to be cancelled. Broadway shows, baseball games, and even the Bronx Zoo was forced to close its doors. And the economic impact is also being felt, with one research paper calculating workers lose about $125 billion a year in the United States due to wildfire smoke. 
That's about 2% of all labor income. And that was Jody Jacobs in New York City. Well, Japan's plan to release contaminated water from Fukushima into the sea has raised fears among South Korean female divers known as Ahenjo in Jeju province. A diver Yoon Jung Lee expressed her concerns about the potential long-term harm that the contaminated water could cause for her community. If there's nuclear pollution, our naked eyes cannot see it. I may not be so sensitive to external stimuli because I'm young, but I feel terrified when I think about myself still being a henyo in 30 years' time. I love the sea very much, and I am very happy to be a henyo. But what if the seawater is poisonous? What if the seniors are physically harmed due to seawater pollution? I feel sorrow when I think about this. There are more than 3,000 female divers in Jeju, with 85% of them over 50 years old. The group's livelihood is harvesting a variety of mollusks, seaweed, and other sea life from the ocean. Currently, the divers are in a struggle to protect the marine environment and save their livelihoods from garbage that ends up in the ocean. Uh, the Igazu Falls in Brazil receives millions of visitors every year. In an effort to give tourists a good experience without harming the environment, private companies and public entities have partnered up. Paulo Cabral has details. The majestic Iguazu Falls, right on the border of Brazil and Argentina, is a UNESCO World Heritage Site and found on many lists of world's greatest natural wonders. An average of 1.5 million liters of water flow per second here, but it can go much higher. Last year, it peaked in October with a force more than 10 times that. Really love it! Amazing! It's so beautiful. It's the second time I am coming. This time I brought my boyfriend with me, and it's wonderful. Here in the Iguazu National Park, private companies are responsible for all the activities for tourists, while public institutions can focus on conservation, research and environmental education. The park attracts close to 2 million visitors per year just on the Brazilian side. It's the second most visited national park in the country and can turn a good profit, but with many obligations attached. The company that holds the concession has to invest in the environmental recovery of the park. They have to invest not only to expand the possibilities for tourism, but also to provide funding for research. They will not carry out studies themselves but they have to provide the funding and also invest in environmental education. For me, this seems to be the best model, because as public agents, we do not have means to be as dynamic as a private company when it comes to relating to the market and operating within the tourism industry. The Iguazu Basin waters are also responsible for turning the turbines of Brazil's largest hydroelectric plant, Itaipu, but mighty as they may be, basin resources are not infinite, nor are they indestructible. The main threats are deforestation and overuse of the water. Electricity generation is the main use of the water here, but there's also high demand of the agriculture sector for irrigation. Especially when the flow is at higher levels, like this year, tourists have plenty of options to enjoy the park at its best. Seeing the massive waterfalls is the big attraction here, but adventurous travelers can have more immersive experiences in the waters of the Iguazu National Park. Descending 20 meters by rope, waterfall repelling is actually an easy option, despite its looks, open to most adults. Another popular high-contact ride takes visitors literally underneath the waterfalls. Not the biggest ones, of course, but big enough for a very wet adventure. After you're going to ride about two or three times again in the fall, but you did it about ten times. It was so great. Yeah. We soaked it. <laughs> we enjoyed it. Iguazu Falls is a place where nature shows off all its glory, power and beauty. But it's up to humankind to be mindful of its conservation. That was Paulo Cabral reporting. We're at 28 minutes past the hour in Beijing's down to 19 degrees overnight. Tomorrow's cloudy and 31 degrees Celsius. Chongqing's at 21 this evening, then clouds in 32. Lasts is 12 overnight, followed by overcast in 26. Hong Kong's down to 27 degrees. 
thunder showers on Saturday in 32. Elsewhere, Tokyo's 19 overnight, then a slight rain in 23. Islamabad has clear skies in 21, then it turns to cloudy in 40. Bangkok's at 26 this evening, and then rain in 33 on Saturday. In Africa, Nairobi is getting a slight rain with a high of 26. And finally, to Oceania, Sydney's at 9 this evening, then sunny in 18. Auckland's down to 7 degrees, then sunny in 15. Port Vila overcast in 26 degrees Celsius. It's time for a short break. So far this hour, the president of Honduras is now in Shanghai for the start of a state visit. The Kremlin's warning of negative impacts for the Black Sea grain deal following damage to a pipeline for Russian ammonia exports. And wildfire smoke continues to pose a health hazard for millions in parts of Canada and the United States. Shane Begum with you. Stay with us here on the Beijing Hour. You're listening to the Beijing Hour. 60 minutes of comprehensive news, your window on China and the world. Examining the events that impact and shape China and the rest of the world. This is the Beijing Hour, one hour of news and information brought to you every weekday. Now here's your host. Shane Begum with you on this Friday. Still to come in business, China's consumer prices continue to rise, but factory costs are dropping. In sports, the women's number one tennis player is back in the final at Roland Garros. In culture and entertainment, UNESCO inscribes more Chinese culture on its heritage list. To contact us, you can email beijinghour at cri.com.cn. Now checking the day's headlines, here's Tian Yu. Thank you, Shane. Honduran President Xiomara Castro is in China for a state visit. She is currently in Shanghai and will later travel to Beijing to meet President Xi Jinping. The two heads of states are expected to plan the future development of ties. China and Honduras established diplomatic relations in March. The International Monetary Fund is assessing the economic damage from the collapse of the Kakhova Dam in Ukraine. IMF spokesperson Julie Kozak says they are very concerned by the economic and environmental impacts of the disaster. It is unfortunately too early to assess the damage on the economy. We're of course following the situation closely. Our team is in very close and frequent contact with the authorities. The ensuing flooding from the collapse earlier this week has ruined crops, displaced landmines, and brought widespread environmental damage. Officials on both sides said at least 14 people have died in the flooding, while thousands of others are homeless. French authorities have identified the suspect in a playground knife attack in France as a Syrian national with refugee status in Sweden. French Interior Minister Gerald Darmanin says France rejected the 31-year-old uh, the 31-year-old man's asylum application last week. Yes, it's a troubling coincidence, because last Sunday he found out the government's decision of not granting him asylum, since he already has it in Sweden. And then he commits this act of crime that is absolutely vile. I really want to send my deep thoughts to the children and to all mothers and fathers. Darmanin says the suspect had, had obtained asylum in Sweden 10 years ago. Four children and two adults were injured after a knife-wielding man attacked them at a lakeside park in Annecy. Mayor Francois Astrock says the children, aged between 22 months and 4 years, are in intensive care in hospital. My first thoughts are for the young victims aged between 22 months and 4 years. There are four of them and two adults. What happened this morning in Annecy is horrifying. I want to thank the security forces, local and national police, as well as the firemen who all reacted in record time. The attacker was quickly arrested by the security forces, and a parameter of security was established. The suspect entered a lakeside playground in the French Alps and targeted children, stabbing them multiple times on Thursday morning. Two adults were injured as the suspect was pursued by police. The 31-year-old is currently in police custody. Young children and high school students who witnessed the attack are getting counseling. British Columbian officials say uh, firefighters are making some progress in battling an out-of-control blaze as more fires burn across Canada. Minister of, of Emergency Management Boeing Ma says wildfires and smoke are affecting Canadians across the country this week. This wildfire season in British Columbia is already well underway and has been since mid-April. There are currently 82 wildfires burning across the province. And since April 1st, 2023, 
382 wildfires have burned a total of 520,520 hectares. Raging wildfires in Canada have led to heavy smoke in the eastern U.S., with New York on Wednesday being among the cities with the worst air quality in the world. Guinea-Bissau Opposition Coalition has won a majority in legislative elections. The result will restore Parliament after a 13-month absence, but likely end the president's hopes for constitutional reform. The Electoral Commission says the Pai Teragranka Coalition won 54 of 102 seats. The party of President Umaro Sissoko Kambalo won 28 seats. The president, the president dissolved Parliament in May last year amid accusations of corruption. The result for now ends Mbalo's plans to push through a change to the constitution that would have allowed him to consolidate power. U.S. senators have introduced two bipartisan artificial intelligence bills amid, uh, amid growing interest in addressing issues surrounding the technology. One will require the U.S. government to be transparent when using AI to interact with people, and another will establish an office to determine if the United States is remaining competitive in the latest technologies. Lawmakers are beginning to consider what new rules are needed because of the rise of AI. The technology made headlines earlier this year when ChatGPT became generally available. The intelligent program can answer questions in written form. Thank you very much. That was Tianyu reporting. This is Shane Bigham in the Chinese capital. Coming up in business, China's consumer prices continue to rise, but factory costs are dropping. D-Dime, a podcast of CGT Radio. We go beyond headlines with reporters from around the world. Search for Deep Dive on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Take a deep dive into the news every week. Hear our conversations. 37 past the hour now. In business, stock markets on the Chinese mainland finished higher today. Timothy Pope has more. The Chinese stock markets closed higher today, but they ended the week with losses. It was a pretty tepid week, characterized by light trade and some pretty small market moves. Today, the Shanghai Composite Index rose about half of 1% on some increasing bets of policy moves in the wake of that latest uh, producer and consumer inflation data, which you've just been talking about. Uh, With uh, producer price prices uh, down more than expected and uh, the consumer prices up by less than expected, uh, the markets are now hoping to see some easing policies delivered in late June or July. Energy uh, and uh, tech and uh, consumer stocks were really uh, leading the early gains today. Eve Energy was a standout though, but it was falling. Uh, It was down 1.8% after the uh, lithium battery maker said that it's going to need to invest 1.4 billion US dollars in order to get its battery factory in Hungary up and running. Uh, The plant uh, that's proposed will produce uh, batteries to power electric vehicles and it's been reported that it's going to be supplying BMW. But uh, the gains uh, today on the markets more broadly were also limited by some profit taking uh, in financial and real estate stocks which have been gaining in the last couple of sessions. These stocks were weakened by expectations that there will be a cut in lending rates but it also does uh, kind of underline the fairly weak sentiment on the Chinese mainland markets at the moment. That was market analyst Timothy Pope in Shanghai. In Hong Kong, the Hang Seng Index gained roughly half a percent. In Japan, the Nikkei was up over 1.9 percent. China's Consumer Price Index grew 0.2 percent on a yearly basis in May, while factory gate prices plunged 4.6 percent. Food prices contributed to almost one-fifth of the increase in consumer inflation, uh, while airfares rose over 14 percent due to the higher demand for travel. On the other hand, China's producer prices have been declining, reportedly due to cooling commodity prices and a higher rate of comparison from last year. In particular, prices for petroleum and natural gas extraction have dropped by almost 20% on a yearly basis. The Lu Jiazui Forum, an important economic and financial conference, enters its final day in Shanghai on Friday. This year's agenda revolves around critical topics including financial liberalization, technological innovation in financial services, and sustainable finance. With more on this, Wang Tianyu spoke to Nicholas Aguzin, the CEO of the Hong Kong Exchanges and Clearing Limited. It's a great relationship and a great partnership whereby the onshore exchanges have a great investor base that can be greatly utilized that in terms of like the Hong Kong market. 
Now for the first time we have a structure whereby international companies that list in Hong Kong will be accessible for onshore investors. And the way they will do it is through the Shanghai Stock Exchange. So when an international company lists in Hong Kong, people will be able to go to the Shanghai Exchange and invest in Hong Kong, which is great. It's really, really interesting. On the other hand, if there's like an interesting company listed in the Shanghai Stock Exchange, in Star Market, a great company, well, international investors may be interested and they will come through Hong Kong and invest in that company. So what we want is the best companies in the world to go to Shanghai whenever they, that, that makes sense for them. And companies will come to Hong Kong whenever it makes sense and we'll get the best of both worlds. What has impressed you the most in terms of the development of China's financial sector? How, how constant it has been. It hasn't stopped, actually it has accelerated. While some people may think, oh, is it going like slow or not fast enough? I actually think that we've had more connect initiatives in the last two years than in the last eight years. So this has been relentless. It has not stopped and I'm very excited about that. What can be improved in terms of the collaboration between Hong Kong and Chinese mainland stock exchanges? All the time we're looking for areas in which we can improve. For example, we just made like a holiday trading improvement whereby investors in the mainland before were limited in terms of the number of days that they can invest in Hong Kong. And international investors were also limited in some of the days that they can invest in, in, in the mainland. So what we did is we created some adjustments and there's all, every day we can see things that can be improved. It's not, it's not like a market that there's nothing to improve. Uh, but what we like is the fact that there's willingness on every side to continue improving and continue making these changes. That was Nicholas Goodson, CEO of Hong Kong Exchanges and Clearing. Organizers say the International Supply Chain Expo in November will feature smart cars, green agriculture, clean energy, digital technology, and healthy life chains. Uh, the China Council for the Promotion of International Trade says there will also be a, a modern logistics supply chain exhibition area. Additionally, there will be uh, supply and demand matchmaking meetings, industry seminars, and new product launches. Participants will include state-owned enterprises and China-based foreign companies, as well as specialized and new enterprises. German carmaker Porsche is marking its 75th anniversary with events around the globe, including celebrations here in China. For the past eight years, the Chinese market's been the company's largest in terms of sales. Omar Khan spoke to Porsche China President Michael Kirsch to get his thoughts on the brand's growth and market position, as well as the digital future. If you look at the first quarter of this year, if I'm not wrong, at 20% year-on-year growth in terms of sales, over 21,000 vehicles delivered, and for the past eight years, China, a single market, has been your biggest. What's behind all of this success? Well, first of all, we're very happy about those numbers, but those numbers honestly don't define us at the end. It's not the volume that, that makes us proud, it's about how we can uh, make our customers in China happy, and that's a uh, a pleasure every day and it, I don't say this to speak nicely is truly what we are <clears throat> the volume is not defining it was going forward for the last eight years and we are happy very very secure that and, uh, and uh, confident that also Porsche is offering in the future with the new development of electromobility uh, and uh, the challenges and digitalization and connectivity to, to provide that product in China for the Chinese customers, individualized, that's needed also in the future. Digitalization, uh, new energy vehicles, that's an inevitable trend. How does the company view that? Is that something you're looking to drive forward with, to trend with? What's your vision on NEVs? Well, I think it's even more than a trend, it's the future. I mean, at the, at the end, uh, the world agreed on electromobility, and electromobility redefines uh, the vehicle, it redefines the industry. We're very committed to do that in China, for China. You're also not alone in this market. You have domestic competitors on the rise, both uh, in the Chinese market and now going global. How do you view this competition? Is it healthy? Are you welcoming it? What happened here in China is truly amazing. Congratulations to uh, the government and to the companies of China uh, that, that have developed for, uh, for, uh, for, to a real innovation leader when it comes to electromobility and uh, connectivity and digitalization. And I say this not only for China, but the world is looking now to China. 
and I think that's a huge, huge achievement. Uh, we are very happy operating here in China, very grateful. For us it's important to be predictable in a way that if we know what's coming we can adjust, that's all fine. Again, our footprint in China is enlarging, um, our commitment into China, our investment into China is going on. So we believe in China, we believe in the future and we want to be part of it like we have been in the past. Uh, we have no doubt that Porsche and uh, China can be a good synergy for success in the future. That report from Omar Khan. China's services sector is bouncing back with consumer spending driving most of the economic growth in the first quarter of this year. To sustain that growth, local government in Shanghai has taken various measures such as providing discount coupons for consumer goods and launching the annual nightlife festival. In Juni reports. People have gotten used to getting out of the door and embracing a more active social life. And so Shanghai's summertime nightlife is returning with more diversity and vigor. As part of this year's nightlife festival, this outdoor market in Shanghai invited over 40 different brands to showcase some trendy items, many hoping they can attract more customers to come to their stores or to pay for their services after the event. We mainly sell surfing products, and our target consumers are quite similar to the visitors here. To us, it's a chance to raise awareness of our products and to get more people come to our store. We run a sports community, holding events like nighttime jogging. We have been partnering with the Nightlife Festival for a long time, and we hope more people can participate in nighttime sports activities. Unlike traditional night markets, stores here mainly feature things rather than food, and that turns out to be an attraction too. There are also places for children, and I really want to visit some of their stores after seeing their displays. As modern young people, we are more interested in the stalls showcasing culture and creative products rather than food stands. One of the popular spots at the market was this store run by a local theater. We come to showcase all of our plays and their derivatives. Visitors can read actors' lines at our stall. We want to get more people come to our theater, as we have plays on stage almost every night. The municipal government says the festival will run until the end of the month, featuring a hundred stores and restaurants staying open especially late. And events like a musical festival and city tours to enrich residents' entertainment options. Financial institutions like Shanghai Hudong Development Bank are there too, offering its credit card holders vouchers which can be used in 20 shopping malls around the city. Online retail service provider Meituan is running online guide services during the festival. And of course, that's where online consumption comes in as well. Meituan reports a 40% growth in online orders during the city's evening hours in the first five months of the year. Compared to that at the same time in 2021. That was Ing Juni reporting. Coming up in sports, the women's number one tennis players back in the final at Roland Garros. The Beijing Hour, your window on China and the rest of the world. 48 past the hour. And with sports now, here is Yang Guang. Thank you, Shane. At the French Open, both number one Igor Sviantek has booked her place in the final for the third time in four years by ending the surprise run by Beatriz Haddad Maia in straight sets. The victory ensures the 22-year-old will remain world number one. She praised her opponent's performance during the game. For sure it wasn't easy and she's a fighter, you know, she showed that on every match she played here. So I knew that I have to be ready for every game because the momentum can change pretty quickly. And I'm happy, you know, that I played so well in a tiebreaker because I think last tiebreakers were so lucky for me. So I'm just uh, glad that I was solid and um, I managed to finish these last, last shots. And, you know, I tried to push on every point and I'm happy that it, that it worked. Haddad Maia is the first Brazilian woman to play in the French Open semi-finals since Maria Bueno in 1966. In another match, unseeded Carolina Mochuva reached the Grand Slam final for the first time after upsetting Arena Sabalenka in three sets. Mochuva had never passed the third round in four appearances in Paris. The 26-year-old expressed her joy after beating the world number two. Well, emotions, uh, it's been a roller coaster. Uh, yeah, two five in a third, but uh, I still kind of, kind of knew it's just one break, and I was waiting for my chances, and um, and it happened. It happened. I I managed to break arena and then then hold my serve, and then 
uh, you never know what's going to happen. I just tried to play point by point and um, yeah, super, super glad that I turned it around and, and managed to win the match. Muchova is the fifth Czech woman in history to reach the French Open final and will take on defending champion Svantec in her first Grand Slam final. Game four of the NBA Finals will be in Miami on Saturday, Beijing time. The Denver Nuggets beat the Miami Heat 109-94 in Game 3 and leads the series 2-1. Brandon Gates previews the upcoming clash. Game four of the NBA Finals between the Denver Nuggets and the Miami Heat takes place in Miami this weekend, with Denver leading the series two games to one. Going into this game, I would say Miami are the underdogs yet again, even on their home court. I cannot see a way for Miami to handle the seemingly unstoppable Nikola Jokic. If they stop him from scoring, then the likes of Jamal Murray gets going through the Joker's link-up play. Miami will have to hope they can maintain intensity on defense and find a clinical edge on attack through the likes of Jimmy Butler. But I still think Denver wins Game 4. That was Brandon Gates on the upcoming Game 4 of the NBA Finals. The 2023 International Weightlifting Federation Grand Prix has kicked off in Havana. The tournament is a qualification event for the 2024 Paris Olympic Games next year. Held for the first time in the Cuban capital, the Grand Prix has gathered over 270 athletes from more than 50 countries and regions, largely from the United States, Cuba, Canada, Egypt and Guatemala. China has secured its second consecutive win in the AFC U20 Women's Asian Cup qualification after beating Nepal 5-0 in the first half. Goals from Ouyang Yuhuan, Huo Yueshin, Ying Lihong and Lu Jiayu helped the team China secure an overwhelming lead, with Yu Jiangqi adding another goal in the 87th minute. The remaining matches of Group B will play on Saturday. Nepal will face Chinese Taipei, while Team China will compete with Myanmar. The 2024 AFC U20 Women's Asian Cup is scheduled to take place in March next year. Liverpool has completed the signing of FIFA World Cup winner Alexis McAllister from Brighton for an estimated £35 million for over $43 million US dollars. The midfielder is Liverpool's first signing of the summer after the club confirmed the departure of James Milner, Naby Keita and Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain. The 24-year-old Argentine contributed 20, 20 goals and 9 assists during his four years in Brighton, which finished 6th in the Premier League this season to qualify for Europe. Liverpool finished 5th place in the Premier League standings this season and missed out on the placing next season's UEFA Champions League. And finally, West Ham chairman David Sullivan has confirmed that England midfielder Declan Rice is set to leave the club this summer. Sullivan made the announcement after West Ham's 2-1 victory over Fiorentina in the final of the UEFA Europa Conference League. He said midfielder turned down a wage offer of about US dollars a week and decided to leave the club. Arsenal, Manchester United and Bayern Munich are thought to be keen on signing the player with 41 England caps. Thank you very much. That was Yang Guang with Sports. This is the Beijing Hour and coming up in culture, UNESCO inscribes more Chinese culture on its heritage list. The NBA is set to have a unique ending this season. Either the Denver Nuggets clinch the first Larry O'Brien trophy in franchise history, or the Miami Heat become the first ever eighth-seeded NBA champions. Which side is gaining the upper hand? Who are the favorites among Chinese fans? Listen to this week's Sideline Story podcast for our NBA basketball discussions. Now 53 past the hour with culture and entertainment. Here is Tianyu. Thank you, Shane. Two new pieces of documentary heritage from China have been inscribed in the memory of the World Register. The UNESCO Register lists documentary heritage that passes criteria for being significant to the world and possessing outstanding universal value. Ding Siyue has more. Compiled from 8th to the 12th centuries, the four treatises of Tibetan medicine are the fundamental classics of traditional medical practices from China's southwest region of Xizang. It describes the development and evolution of traditional Tibetan medicine. The documents have also played an essential role in the dissemination and development of Tibetan medicine in the Qinghai-Xizang Plateau and the Himalayan and Mongolian regions. 
The four treatises not only represent the highest level of medical care in Xizang in ancient times, but also reflects the study of humanity's history, tradition, literature, art, and craft in the region's early history. Four xylograph versions of the four treatises are the proofread and revised editions in different historical phases, while the one gold ink manuscript version is the best preserved rare book. The second Chinese collection, newly added to the memory of the World Register, is the archives and manuscripts of Macau Kongtalam Temple, dating from 1645 to 1980. It comprises over 6,600 volumes of archives and manuscripts, rare books, Buddhist texts, old photos, and paintings. As an important documentary heritage of Macau's special administrative region. The collection bears witness to the unique and extraordinary role of the temple in the dissemination of Buddhist teaching and ideology for women in China and its neighbors, as well as in advocating social change and reform, especially in liberating and raising the social status of women. So far, there are altogether 15 items of documentary heritage of China inscribed on the UNESCO Memory of the World Register. Which include oracle bone inscriptions, documents of the Nanjing Massacre, Compendium of Material Medica, Qing Dynasty Yang Shilei Archives, and a golden list of the Qing Dynasty. That was Ding Siyue reporting. The 29th Beijing International Book Fair will kick off next week with 2,500 exhibitors from 56 countries and regions. Over 200,000 Chinese and foreign books will showcase at this year's book fair. Over 1,500 participants from domestic and international publishing organizations will gather at the National Convention Center. For the first time, this year's event includes an online publishing exhibition to showcase emerging publishing forms such as online literature and online games. The first forum on building up China's cultural strength is underway in Shenzhen. The event focuses on topics including literary and artistic creation, the preservation of cultural heritage, and copyright protection. Officials and scholars share their views on the development and application of cutting-edge technologies in digital publishing, measures for the protection and urban and rural cultural relics, and creating more high-quality cultural products. Shenzhen is also hosting the 19th International Cultural Industries Fair. Archaeologists have found a rare hawk-shaped pottery item in Jiangsu Province that they think might have been a child's toy from 6,000 years ago. They found a pottery pig at a Neolithic site of the Ma'an relics in Wuxi. The size of a child's fist, the pig has several holes and seems to have pottery beads inside its hollowed body. Archaeologists have unearthed more than 260 items, including stone pottery and jadeware from the Ma'an relic site. And finally, award-winning rapper, activist, and actor Tupac Shakur has has received a, posthum- a posthumous star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, where his sister and fellow rappers spoke of the musician's legacy around the world. Shakur was killed in 1996 at age 25 in a drive-by shooting in Las Vegas that has never been solved. Thank you very much. That was Tianyu reporting. Now, 58 past the hour, and checking the forecast before we go for the day. Beijing's down to 19 degrees this evening. It's cloudy and 31 on Saturday. Chongqing dips to 21, then cloudy and 32. Lasts down to 12. It's overcast and 26 tomorrow. Hong Kong's at 27 overnight, then thunder showers and 32. Elsewhere, Tokyo's 19 this evening. A slight rain and 23 on Saturday. Islamabad has clear skies and 21 tonight. Then it clouds over with the high of 40 degrees on the day. Bangkok's at 26 overnight, then rainfall and 33 on Saturday. That's it for this edition of the Beijing Hour. Making news today: the president of Honduras is now in Shanghai for the start of a state visit. The Kremlin's warning of negative impacts for the Black Sea grain deal following damage to a pipeline for Russian ammonia exports. On behalf of the staff, this is Shane Begum in the Chinese capital, hoping you'll join us for the next edition of the Beijing Hour and open a window to the world together. Wondered what's actually going on in Africa through the perspective of an African? How are things really going between China and Africa? What's the narrative of this relationship? Well, get a perspective with China Africa Talk. Hear from African diplomats, entrepreneurs, 
academics, Chinese natives, and more. Get on our wavelength every week to find out what's real with China Africa Talk. Find us on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Google Podcast, and more. We'll see you there. A million, a billion, or maybe a gazillion years ago, a giant split open an egg. Then came the lady giant who made people, and Mr. Curious, the botanist, Mr. Handyman, the Baron on the tree. This is our new season of Chinese folk tales, and we will explore the ancient mystical world together. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen.